0: Oh, here we go, Mark. Off again sure. this with you. Mark Mark yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? The ground beneath your feet is alive. Megatons grinding across megatons. Pressure, heat, an archive of minerals, masses of metamorphic Goliaths, and igneous Titans crushing Blending and buried by sediment, an ever growing result of calcified life receding back into the matrix strata, which bubbles and bulges, expanding upwards and thrusting, bracing the deceptively gradual, ingrained, warped and waned, rugged and ragged landscape that gleams in contrast to the unpolished surface that ever increases at a largo paced grind, constantly devouring the tender structures of the human architect the ancient builders of the great megalithic wonders of the world knew how to work in the ultra durable stone and flow with not against the subtle and harsh energies and elements of our earthly realm a new wave of architects stands in defiance of modern convention in favor of the antiquated occupation of the sacred builder drafting the divine back into the landscape Topher Gardner joins me, Mystic Mark, to discuss all of this and more here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Topher Gardner.
1: Joseph Davidovitz figured out in the seventies that the majority of the rock, like quote unquote rock that are in a lot of these megalithic structures and pyramids were actually created. They were man-made. It's no longer a mystery. It's only a mystery to the to the uninitiated, let's say. <laughs> This is something that's being used. Militaries around the world are using this. Very, very rich people are using this to build their structures and their bunkers so a a geopolymer is essentially a man-made stone so what he had figured out was in 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 egypt where the giza plateau is he went and studied samples of the rock there and he was in in the, the what remained of some of the casing stones that were there and then the base stones of the of the great pyramid and he was like oh this is this is a polymer He was, he was ousted from Egypt by the late seventies because he was like, he pretty much showed the, that everything that they were pushing about the slave narrative to build the the pyramids was absolutely false. My name's Christopher Gardner. All my friends know me as Topher. That's, that's sort of been my nickname for the last... I guess, 18 years. (laughs) So it was kind of cool. The first half of my life, everybody called me Chris and now everybody calls me Topher, except for my mother. My mother abhors the idea. She's like, don't take the Christ out of your name. (laughs) But I was a South Florida boy, grew up as sort of an urban kid in South Florida, but being urban in South Florida, we still were exposed to a lot of water. Had the Everglades in my backyard and we go ocean fishing, did tons and tons of fishing as a kid. So that was sort of how I had my access to nature. I got a scholarship to go to Michigan State University for field goal kicking. And I did that for four years in the mid-90s and was on another peninsula. I I, uh, went from the Florida Peninsula to the Michigan Peninsula. So once again, I was then exposed to all the different type of water sports, up there and uh, which it was totally different world, you know, that peninsula relative to the one I was from. And then after football, I ended up essentially getting into yoga. Well, I actually got into yoga and massage at the latter stages of my football career to kind of heal my body. I had a ton of, well, I had at least five concussions from football and car accidents and things like that. And my body was pretty bent up because as a football player, I was just a kicker. I was only, you know, about five foot nine, 195 pounds. And I had massive men crushing me (laughs) here and there. Then also I had the repetitive stress injury of hitting something as hard as I could 150 times a day, which was what field goal kicking is. And so my body was extremely out of balance and I got into yoga and within a month, I didn't have to see a chiropractor again. And all this pain I started that was in my body wasn't there and it was like a revelation. And so I was able to get off all the the pain meds that, that my college had me on. And then I got introduced to meditation, transcendental meditation at first, and then a type of meditation known as self-inquiry after that. Soon I was out of college and that like completely shifted my life into an Eastern framework. I wanted to be, (laughs) I wanted to be enlightened. You know, I was reading Nisargadatta Maharaj and Osho and Ramana Maharshi, like I couldn't get enough of these sages from, from India. And even like, you know, some of the sages that were from the far East. And I was just like, that's what life is about. Life is about you know, attaining to the highest level of consciousness. And then the whole question of consciousness really came (laughs) to my mind. Like, what is consciousness? Like if you're claiming to, to want to be, I guess you would say, exalted in your level of awareness, a good question is like, what is awareness? What is sentience? And so I ended up becoming an operations director for an ashram. It was a U.S.-based ashram, but we would go to India every year. And we did that for a couple of years. And we started to get a pretty big following with people that were coming to our satsangs. And we just made a business decision, actually, to like, hey, like, being in South Florida with how popular we are really isn't all that smart. Let's move to a destination area that wasn't in like an urban setting. And so we picked up and moved down to Costa Rica. And I was about to build a 4,000 square foot ashram, like meditation facility on the top of this mountain (laughs) that overlooks the ocean and whole bottom dropped out of the ashram. And so I ended up finding myself with my ex-wife, just kind of with our hat in our hand being like, what do we do now? (laughs) I can massage, I can kick a ball really far. I can teach people how to meditate and that's about it. Like I'm pretty useless. And I had just been introduced to Victor Schauberger about six months prior to that. And so I just dove into everything that the natural philosophers were into. I shifted my focus from Eastern thought more towards the Western rationalists, the the natural philosophers, natural philosophers and found like a really good balance because some of the works of like walter russell walter russell john moriel Keeley, steinmetz i didn't read much of tesla's own work but i read a lot of people talking about him before he became really popularized a lot of these natural philosophers i was reading a lot of wilhelm reich even though he he didn't never termed himself a natural philosopher he used a lot of those tenets And then I found myself living on a biodynamic farm in the middle of the rainforest, trying to learn how natural systems work and taking permaculture design courses and just becoming somewhat functional in a world where self-reliance is very important. Because up until that point, I just had very minimal construction experience and I wasn't a really viable man. <laughs> I couldn't really do anything other than what I previously described. And so, you know, Costa Rica for, and to this day, is just this humbling, beautiful land that teaches you how to be self-reliant. At least that, that was my path. That was my per, personal astro cartography with, with Costa Rica. It was always teaching me a. Like, it was like, okay, pay attention to your environment. This is the way it can be done naturally, and this is the way it can be done artificially. You choose in this free will realm that we're in. You get to choose, but here the res- the the results of your choices will be like instant instant karma. <laughs> so that that's sort of the 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 brief description of my my journey of forty six years on the, in this realm
0: wow thank you for for giving us the broad strokes so there's a few things i want to follow back on but let's keep on costa rica here you mentioned it being like the way you just described it it sounds like it's almost like the karmic energy is faster there or the the relationship is faster right and is That have anything to do with it being on the equator, being in like, you know, as a New Englander, I'm used to this sort of like cycle of cold, Mm -hmm. hot, cold, hot, and like, you know, stay inside, then go and be outside as much as you can. It seems the exact opposite there in Costa Rica, where, you know, you have maybe a rainy season and a dry season, but for the most part, there's no pressure of an win- incoming winter to be like, okay, we need to get this done. But there is that pressure of like the jungle growing in on you, right? And, and probably many other factors that I'm not aware of. But let us, let us know, like take us through Costa Rica a little bit. Like, what, what are some of the spiritual lessons you learned there?
1: Well, Costa Rica is a naturally unstable space. You're at nine degrees of latitude, so you're somewhat close to the equator, but you're between two of the largest bodies of water in the world. You're between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. And the highest point of Central America was just east of me, the Chiripo Mountain Range. It's part of the Talamanca mountain range so that you could imagine the air systems of these two oceans converging right there. So it was always a land bridge. It's a very young geological formation. It's made mainly out of red clay, bauxite clay. And bauxite clay is a paramagnetic material. So up in New England, you live on a very diamagnetic bedrock. So diamagnetic is the vertical line it's the it's the male polarity it's very A type there's there's a direction we're going that direction paramagnetic is the female energy <laughs> it goes in every direction and it's constantly shit testing the male energy <laughs> So a lot of people go to Costa Rica like I I couldn't even tell you, There's probably a couple dozen gringos that I know that moved to Costa Rica during their first Saturn return. And if you know anything about astrology, you know, your Saturn return, which I think you're coming up on if I, if I know you're, I just turned 28. Yeah. Your Saturn returns usually from 28 through 29 and a half. It's a, it's a year and a half cycle but so many people move there right before that or during it or right after that. And it's mainly, it's like in the area, I can only speak about the area that I was in, which was the Southern Pacific zone. So that's like the rainforest. You're, you're not, it's not like Tamarindo where you're in a dry forest or anything like that. This is like the jungle is on you in that paramagnetic earth where everything's constantly going in every direction and obviously the ground there is also moving all the time. Costa Rica has about 400 earthquakes a year. So that's more than one a day and they're micro like most of them are micro but like the first couple of years I was there we had seven we had seven earthquakes above a 6 on the Richter scale. So the land is you know, moving and you get liquefaction, you get, you just get to see the more temporal nature of, of the earth. I have recently moved to the Ozarks and this is diamagnetic. It's not quite as diamagnetic as where you are. And things are more cyclical and they are more structured and it is, it is a more stable environment. Like I can actually feel the stability here cuz literally the ground isn't shaking underneath you. Another neat thing about living in a paramagnetic area is that you're more ruled by the moon than you are by the sun. So if you're if if you're ever going to look at the earth as King's model as like the cathode anode, have you ever seen that model of the yeah. cathode anode? Yeah. Well, he has a brilliant way of looking at it. The the moon is paramagnetic. So what I would notice was I I would do these full moon hikes with my neighbor and we would hike down. I lived in front of the biggest waterfall in Central America called the Diamante Waterfall. And we would hike from that waterfall and we were equidistant, like it was a perfect triangle, to two of the other largest waterfalls in all of Central America. And so we would hike from where we could look across across the valley and see the diamante. And then we would hike all the way down on these full moon hikes. We leave at two o'clock in the morning. And by the time we would get down to the Nyaka waterfall, the moon would be right over the river for at least two thirds of the year. Cause you know, the, the, depending on what time of year, the moon has, it's has its different correlation to that angle. And so I got to really observe at night and in the full on the difference of how the full moon felt there relative to other places and feel it with my body, feel it in relation to water. And then also I was doing tons of massage and I would listen to people because when you're a massage therapist, a lot of times you're just a therapist, (laughs) So, I would listen to people a lot of times just tell me what they were going through. And I would notice all the women, how they would describe and how they would be going through things would follow the moon cycle. It was like almost like if they were all just saying the same thing, it was just moving through the community in a very, in a way that was controlled by the moon. And I was like, "Whoa!" And I, I had, I had taken a course in Celestics, which is real sky astrology, where you use a planisphere and you learn just a couple trigonometry points. You, you essentially become like an old sailboat captain, (laughs) where you know how to, you understand declination and inclination of the sky and the horizon. You learn the the plane ecliptic, you learn where where the moon and the sun are in relation to each other and all the, all of the, I'm losing the term, all the constellations that yeah. are on that arc, on that solar arc. And it was just amazing to be able to be in an environment where I had enough time where I could make these observations on a on a physical level with people relative to having direct Inter interaction with my environment. Right. And I got to do that before it got commercialized for about eight years. So it, it was a it was a real blessing to have that. So Costa Rica overall has so much water because it's in between two massive water bodies, and there's these tall mountains in between these water, but you have all these streams and everything like that. So you everybody has to get in touch with their emotions there. <laughs> and in other areas that are more diamagnetic people can repress their emotions much easier and in a, in an area like costa rica you can you can repress your emotions if you if you really really try hard but more than likely they will come out and show themselves so it's much more in the feminine i should say more much more of the negative pole of of how expression works in nature it's so
0: fascinating and i'm curious now maybe that's why i was so drawn to smoking cannabis as a kid because i grew up in this diamagnetic environment where Mm -hmm. my father his father were repressing their emotions that sociologically got passed on to me and i was in an environment where you know you could just do that easier and then you have this plant that Seems to maybe grow, I'm just guessing, but maybe it grows in paramagnetic places. Maybe that had something to do with it, I don't know. <laughs> but wow, that's incredible. I I have always gotten this impression, I mean, I'm only 28 years old, so for the most part of my life, Costa Rica was like this sort of exotic getaway, and then over the past five or six years, I started to hear about these like new age sort of cults that are in Costa Rica that are like trying to recruit people from online to, to come and live there. And I'm curious as someone who's been there, you know, way before it got commercialized, like, was that a aspect that came in through like the commercialization? Like, did you experience that? Did you see that happening cult type people? And do you think that is a result of this paramagnetic energy in some way where maybe people's emotions are heightened. So they're a little bit more manipulative or, or could be led to be manipulated easier.
1: I think it it's actually both. Like I was led there when I was in an ashram and you know, the way consciousness worked was, was like I was making a business decision. I had been to Costa Rica and loved it and thought it was a destination area. It's like when anybody sees something beautiful, well, I won't, I won't generalize this. When I have seen things that are beautiful, I want to share them. And so because we were having workshops and people were paying to come and see us and, 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 and be a part of what we were, what we were presenting in the ashram to me, it just made sense that, you know, you wanted to put that in a beautiful setting, like in a, in a much more beautiful setting than South Florida. And in in an area where people actually had space, you know, there's a much lower population density. Like when we would go to India, it had its own charm. I wouldn't say it was beautiful because it's to me, it's not. It was very polluted, very very densely populated area, and so there are certain aspects to being exposed to different culture that's very beautiful. But the land, the nature in and of itself had been very abused. In Costa Rica, it still feels somewhat pristine, you know, especially when we were when we were first getting there. Like it was one of these things that was like, whoa, it's, it will open your heart just to look at a valley or, or be on a mountaintop and see the ocean. It's like extraordinarily beautiful. And that adds to the overall spiritual experience of knowing that you're being taken care of, like knowing that, you know, God is good type thing. And so I think we always laugh because I moved there to build, for lack of a better term, a yoga and meditation retreat facility. And I've ended up building <laughs> seven different yoga and meditation retreat centers for over the years for different people. Right. <laughs> and so I find it really funny. You know, I think my my attention was just like, I was associating it with the spiritual side of things, but what it ended up being for me in reality was business. It was like, the, there's only two business models down there for gringos. The first business model is, hey, open a yoga and meditation retreat facility. <laughs> and the second business model is for the, for the Costa Ricans is to open a, so, what they call a soda, which is just like a small family restaurant. there's only two business models. If you have any extra income or whatever, that's all anybody does down there. And it's just like chiropractic. Like it's the difference between a good chiropractor and a bad chiropractor. Like there are some facilities down there that are awesome. And I know people that have really put, put their money where their mouth is and they live the life and they provide an excellent, excellent product. And then I know, Others, other centers where it's, it's absolute BS and there's everything in between. There's just a high density of that down there just because I think there's so much beauty. Mm. Like people know, like, you know, even if you provide a bad product, people will go there and have a great experience just because they look out their window and they see a toucan or a or a howler monkey or something and it's just the the land itself is what's doing the work on you not anything that you're providing mm. yeah and it's so
0: a beautiful to hear you retell this cuz clearly you've absorbed the splendor that is costa rica and it it's such a fascinating place i mean especially how you describe it Being in between the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, I had never thought of it that way. But when you put it in that context, it's like this transitory place of two huge, huge bodies of water, this huge amount of energy, not to mention all the wind that's flowing. So, wow. I mean, maybe it's the Saturn return, but I'm definitely getting warmed up to the idea of going down there. And I think the only thing that stopped me from from traveling... Besides financial setbacks is is just like there's this creeping, pernicious propagandization of anything not America where they're like, there's guns, there's drug dealers, there's kidnappers, there's sex traffickers. It's like all these things as someone as paranoid as me, I can't not take those things into account. I'm 6 foot 8, I stand out. Do you think any of that's true? Is there any truth to that? Would I be in danger going to Costa Rica? I know it's it's an entire country. It's hard to sum up in just a few sentences, but like what do you think that is? Is that just people trying to keep people in a box? Is it really dangerous?
1: I you know, my projection on the world is that the world is is very friendly. Mm. I've pretty much traveled on every continent except for Australia and and also South America. I've I've yet to go to South America. But pretty much everywhere I've gone, even in the slums of India, you know, in some pretty hairy spots in Miami, Florida, which is like another country, you know, the slums of Detroit, of New York, like... You know, I have to say I'm a bad person to ask cuz I don't I don't feel in danger. I've I've I felt danger. I, well, I I don't feel paranoid in those spaces. I've definitely been in situations that I knew were dangerous. Probably the most being in Amsterdam and most people think Amsterdam is like this really chill spot and for the most part it is, but there was definitely danger happening in an alleyway where I was. But overall, cent- like the reason why Co- Costa Rica is so popular is because it's not dangerous. If you're a six foot eight man and you go down there, you'll be a god. Because <laughs> the, the Ticos are small stature people. You know, the indigenous Costa Ricans, they call themselves Ticos. And so I I have a bunch of friends that are all ex-professional athletes that live down there. And they're shorter than you and they're like the, the Ticos just like look up to, to them and just like, you know, <laughs> you can do no wrong. So at least in the area in the Southern Pacific zone, you'd be totally cool.
0: Well, and I appreciate that, and I have—I I tend to have the same impression myself when I'm in a place that someone would consider dangerous. I mean, I live on the East Coast, New England. There's some pretty rough areas, and and I've been comfortable in them. So yeah, I gotta—I gotta let go of all those mal impressions that have been given to me by people who, for the most part, haven't even been to those places that they have judgments about. So yeah, yeah. it's it's a cool opportunity to to ask you, because you have been to so many places, but but yeah, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning. Maybe we don't need to spend too much time on this, because I do want to get into architecture and, and when that became a part of your life. But you mentioned meditation, practicing meditation, and then learning a specific technique in meditation, or a type of meditation called self-inquiry. Can you expand on that? Because... I, maybe I've done that before, but it sounds familiar, and I'd like to to learn more.
1: Self inquiry is known as Atma Vichara, so it's the basic it's the basis of all Vedanta Advaita or the practice of non duality. So, in self inquiry, what you're doing is is you understand that you're constantly identifying with stimulus. So what you do is you redirect your outward attention towards that which is actually experiencing the stimulus. So what you would do, like, for example, in this situation is when we're speaking to each other, I would, I, I would internally ask, well, who is speaking to Mark? And then the internal answer is I am. I, me, I am. And you feel the I am. But you recognize by feeling the I am, there's still an observer that is observing the I am. The I am isn't in a vacuum. There's still something else that is there that is aware of that which you're identifying with. And what you're doing is, is then you're tracing where does this I am come from? And this, this gets you to the fourth wall of what I call the fourth wall. So you're in, you're in podcast production and probably other media production. So you're always producing things that people see that's in front of their eyes, where they listen to, and it's in the forefront of their consciousness. The whole self-inquiry process gets you to that point where you recognize the true I am, the big I, is the fourth wall. In that all experience is in front of you.
0: Yeah, it's like that. The thought observing the thought, observing the thought shatters the whole thinking illusion. And then you realize who's who's actually there.
1: (laughs) It's actually pre-thought. So my teacher, he was very big in saying that Descartes was wrong. You know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is you are before you think. Mm -hmm. So, so his, his, he was very simple Indian man. And he was, he was very much just like you incarnate to learn how to eat correctly, sleep correctly and poop correctly. Once you learn those three things and they're much more complicated than you think, (laughs) or I should say they're not complicated because we all do them every day and it just happens involuntarily, mostly. But our awareness of how they're occurring and why they're occurring is very, very depressed at the moment. Most of our involuntary actions that are, occur, we don't have a grade of awareness of what our conscious is, consciousness is relative to them. So he was like, once you master master eating, pooping, and sleeping, and he was more articulate than me. He didn't say pooping. he said excreting. <laughs> excretions because excretions can be pleasurable that could be you know orgasm that could be any anything You, you know let your imagination do the walking there but his whole thing was in these moments like especially when you're falling asleep what is sleep who is there that's aware of sleep and most most people don't really ever let their awareness go there or a better way of saying is they don't Actually, find that aspect of their awareness that is there during that, because they're they're they are in the Descartes way of being. They're in the Descartes mind of, "I think, therefore I am," and that's a fallacy. the the The, the way of looking at that is, the observer and the observed r- arise at the same time. You can't have one without the other. Right. So when I say the fourth wall, and this is where I really think the the beauty of self-inquiry gets you to is you get to a state of being where there is not an observed or observer. There is just being. There is this, I guess, you know, I've likened it to, because it's so hard to talk about non-experience in the experiential realm. It's just like a good wipe. Like it, it, when you cut, you can only know about it at, in, in retrospect. <laughs> you come out of it and you're just clean. Like you don't have all your RAM is available for experience. Mm. And because you're not identified with, you don't, your identity is not miss applied, you have a lot more energy and a lot more clarity in what is actually happening around you.
0: Mm. Yeah. It, is this a sort of psychosomatic effect through yoga? Because like, as a martial artist, I noticed the more I consciously focused on the, the body movements I was doing, the less I needed to put thought there and the more seamless my actions were and then it sort of carried over into other things that I do, like what, for instance making art. I'm sure people who are making art are familiar with this feeling where time just sort of slips away, and you're just doing, you're just being, you're being the the process, right? Is mm-hmm. am I sort of describing what you're talking about?
1: I th- really you are. I really think the reason why it was so natural for me to go in that direction was because I was a high level athlete. Mm. And so the flow state that I would get in, in soccer or in tennis or in football, all my best performances, when I would be in the flow, I wasn't doing it. There wasn't like this conscious, you know, gears grinding and me thinking about what was going on. I put in the time and the work beforehand, and then in a, in a state of high stress, there would be no stress and perfection would occur. And that was the flow state. And all my friends are people that are what what I would consider high performers. And they've all experienced it. Like whether they're actors or comedians or professional athletes or doctors, they all go into a very high stakes scenario and in that high-stakes scenario there's something that occurs in in the consciousness where the i that we normally identify with is gone it's not there and there's just pure experience and even for the most part like i've 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 been i guess you would say i i practiced with psych, psychedelics and nootropics for a good dozen years. And that is a way of like artificially inducing that space in, in some ways, depending on the setting. But in natural movement, like I think we incarnate to learn boundaries, but also we incarnate so that our body, our antenna, our the way our our mass moves through space is there to be perfected to a point where we can actually have these flow state moments where the, the little eye isn't there. It's just pure awareness and, and functional intelligence. And then in retrospect, you come out of it and you're like, Whoa. And I used to have this discussion with all, all these ex pro athletes and I think that one of the reasons why a lot of athletes get depressed other than concussions <laughs> is they don't have the flow state as much in their life. They like when you're practicing and you're in games and stuff like that, you're in these high stakes environments that, that it's easier to induce a flow state than when you're just kind of putzing around. And uh, so what I noticed with a lot of high performers and a lot of clients of mine are that they are always putting themselves in high-stakes scenarios. They're always like becoming an entrepreneur in a new field, or they're trying something new. They're they're always adding novelty to their life to simulate the stress that would be needed to actually induce the flow state.
0: Hmm. Maybe that's why I drive fast. <laughs>
1: hey, I. I would not doubt it, man. I, I, I really respect that. In fact, that's really synchronistic because I just got my best friend for my entire life. He loves driving fast and he's an ex like he's a race car driver. And it, I never even when we were kids, I never felt unsafe with him. Like we would be doing I won't even call it dangerous because I was never in danger. To the outside perspective, it just looked like, you know, two 16-year-olds being a hooligan in, in our friend's cars. But that wasn't what it was. It was me enjoying somebody that could handle speed.
0: Mm, and, in, and he and enjoyed that flow state that it brought on, too. He
1: he went into this day. We'll go in his in his last car. Let's just say I, I won't I don't want to say anything out there. <laughs> Like, let's just say we're going 100 plus miles per hour where we shouldn't be going 100 plus miles per hour. And I felt relaxed because this guy at speed is a master. Yeah, man,
0: that's brilliant. And to your point that you're making, it's bringing up the thought that we don't have enough ceremony we don't have enough dance in our in our society anymore and that's why you saw things like sports and dance ritualized and ceremonial at least in the ancient world and still today in some indigenous cultures because it's a natural part of our human lifestyle. I mean, to get out and move your body, you know, that's why ecstatic dancing is still a part of many different religions, usually mm-hmm. secretly, but yeah, they do all sorts of dances to get yourself into this, you know, heightened state of awareness and maybe even receive some, some insight from God or whoever, you know, whoever you're you're dancing for. <laughs>
1: Oh, man, I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of cymatics and vibratory healing I've done. I've been I've been in a lot of ceremony, even like even as a little kid, just this is like the crappiest example. But it it was very pertinent. I had my dad had awesome stereo systems growing up. And, you know, he would listen to what I would consider like good rock and roll music growing up. And he, for his thesis in architecture school was he built a a hyperboloid. So it's like the inside of an hourglass. And he did it with strings. And at the top, it was hooked to a woofer, like a big, no, at the bottom was a big woofer, like a 12 inch woofer. And at the top, I think he had four drivers, like four mid ranges. And he hooked them up and they were all different color strings. And when the string would vibrate at a certain note, it would flash a certain color light. And that's, that's, that was his graduating thesis, you know, build at Florida State University. And so he was into sound, but I didn't, I never grew up in a musical, like we didn't, we weren't a musical family in the sense like we played any instruments. So we would go to Epcot for vacation, and we were at the Japanese temple space at Epcot, and they start doing the big drums. And I was six years old, and I lost my mind. I was just like, I could not stop moving. I was just like, ah! I might have been eight years old. I, w- I was either, I was in that age range. And I was just like, it was one of those cymatic moments where I had no control over my body. My body was being moved. And I say that to this day. I was like, I don't dance. I get danced. And then Emily Moyer, do you know her from Strange Mosaic? Absolutely. Yeah. She's a good friend of my friend Mike Juan. So
0: yes, oh, friend of a friend.
1: Ex- excellent. Well, she and I really connect on this because we're we're the same age and we both came up during the rave, like the original rave days. And I would go to these raves and I was on no drugs because I was an athlete. Like I was getting drug tested like every few weeks. So I would, and I was so naive to the fact that everyone was on ecstasy. (laughs) I had no idea because that wasn't in my purview. So I would go to these raves and everybody would be moving the same way. And just like it was like a huge, like video from like, like, you know, back in the eighties, like when everybody would dance and lockstep with each other and stuff like that. But you, I would go to these raves and everybody would like the DJ would like do the build and we would all just like be doing it and we'd get in it. And before you know it, there'd be like three, 4,000 people just moving. It was like a school of fish. It was amazingly beautiful experience. And because I, I I wasn't inebriated in any way, my heart would open. My heart would just go. And maybe, and I'm also very, I, I get into sympathetic resonance with people. And I know people on ecstasy, their heart opens. So maybe that was part of it. But to this day, cymatics and vibrational healing arts, even we, we initiated one of the last temples that I built. The woman brought this huge crystal bowl and she was having, she was singing the crystal bowl and they put river water from the local river in, in the bowl. And it was amazing. There was like at least 15 or 16 of us that were watching. She was doing the the crystal bowl in the cymatic pattern of the water. Like it froze, like it created this crystalline, You know shape in the water in that temple is absolutely stunning. I really, I really think her doing that little Invocation set the tone For the building pad for everything that we did from that point because it was a difficult build like it was not an easy thing to do but we knocked it out of the park and so I'm. I love everything to do with vibration, vibra- vibrational physics. I'm a. I'm a huge a studier of. It's called sympathetic vibratory physics from Dale Pond. He's a contemporary of a John Wel- John Worrell Keeley, and yeah, learning about harmonics and how harmonics work on water. I, I'm. I'm all about it. He, his name is Dale Pond. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that both of the words in his name are references to bodies of water, a dale and a pond. But <laughs> when you mentioned World Keeley earlier, my ears perked up because I have this book over here. Let's read it. It's right next to me. Hold on. Where did it go? Oh. Free Energy Pioneer, John Whirl Keeley. I found this book at a used bookstore and I was... Stunned. It's by Theo Paimans who's apparently sort of a, a cult scholar over there in the Netherlands. But uh, tell us about this guy, because I'd never heard of him until I found that book. And apparently he was uh, he was uh, alive prior to Tesla and was doing all of these free energy experiments in Philadelphia, is it? I mean, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, he wasn't just doing experiments. like He was hired by he he could dig tunnels let's say more efficiently than anyone else could at the time using vibration and so he was highly sought after by railroad companies so a lot of the the tunnels the way that they're dug are not are not the way we were told that they were dug so he figured out the harmonics for association and disassociation of all different materials. He was very much in the same ray of energy that Walter Russell was. So the way they looked at the world is is that they looked at it more from an ether perspective than they did from an atomist perspective. An ether essentially being an absolutely solid medium it's just very subtle relative to our mass and th- they worked on how the harmonics within this within our four four dimensional space could either induce extra energy from the ether or extract energy from this for four-dimensional space and pull it into the ether. A in a more modern parlance, it's, it's, it's the scale. It would be essentially, they were describing the scalar domain. And I love the scalar domain because the scalar domain, I, I get a lot of, I understand how it works through the feminine component of experience. So the best way of saying that, like scalar is the ambiance. So like if you have a sensitive heterosexual woman and you have a certain intention, the ambiance has to match that intention. If, if the ambiance that you're providing doesn't match your intention, she'll, she'll shit test you. She'll literally be, she'll she'll reject you relative to your intent. So there's this, it's like uh, if you've ever had really fine stemware with drinking either like a very nice glass of whiskey or a very nice champagne, the stemware or the rocks glass that you use has a lot to do with the actual flavor of what you experience. The container delivers the experience. And that's what scalar physics is. I, I'm really like making. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. But that's what scalar physics is. Scalar physics is, or ether physics is. I can engineer the container to create the outcome that I want. Right. And the container in this in this regard is invisible to to our our natural senses. Right. When you start to take some of the psychedelics your frequency range opens up more and so you have more you can peer more into the scalar domain
0: now when we're talking about the difference between a paramagnetic and a diamagnetic environment would scalar waves play into that at all would there be maybe a higher amount of magnetism in the you know field in certain places, does that affect the the scalar domain of that area as well?
1: Yeah, life is specific. Life is extremely specific. So how each one of us like we have different have you ever heard the term astro cartography? Well, you mentioned it earlier and I made a note of it. So I'm glad we're here. I would like you to elaborate on that. So depending on where you are in the realm, your your I guess your template like I call it your celestic profile. Other people call it your natal chart. The template of how you were, how you were engineered before your free will came online will interact differently with every environment. And that's your astro cartography. Right. So how you, how you express in the Northeast of United States is going to be very different than how you're going to express in, let's say Slovakia, because it's a different, base, like you could say the land that you are is the base harmonic is the base frequency. Then your frequency overlays that. And that creates a different harmonic than where you were born or where you live now, Were you born, where you live right now. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things that I've, I've started studying with the law is where a person has the most power from like standing up for their own rights and standing up is a very specific term is in the County that they're born. (laughs) And I think there's this thing where like, you know, I'm making a jump, I'm making a logical leap here, but there is wherever you were born, at least in the past, that's probably where your placenta was buried. You know, your, your twin of yourself was buried in that ca of the of the kabbalah that life force energy that came with you into this land is now part of the earth and that carries a resonant pattern when you move when you go to a different area you're going to have a different resonant pattern and it will express different aspects of your chart so like in astrocartography, cartography they'll say hey if you move here, this is much more of what's going to be expressed than if you move here, then this is what's going to be expressed. And there's a ton of truth to it because that's actually a tenant in ether physics. And also Raja yoga is frequency is location. So your, your location there in new England, that is your frequency. If you were to move to Costa Rica, The frequency there is a different location. It's a different frequency. And then you get to experience that different aspect of yourself. Like, for example, for me, living in South Florida, Michigan, in every area that I've ever lived in, I've expressed completely differently. Yeah,
0: I think there's a lot of truth that I I mean, really haven't traveled that much, but I did feel I did feel a different side of myself when I was in Colorado. I spent a few weeks there, really not enough time to to make a a major assessment. But yeah, that's the only place I've ever spent a considerable amount of time outside of New England. And it's yeah, it seems like it seems like the part of my life where I began to be more self-sufficient, started wrapping crystals and making these like necklaces that I then sort of sold I can't pull one they're all attached oh here we go I want to show you but I started making these and this kind of led into what I'm doing now in a way because I that's when I came up with the name Mystic Mark and now I sometimes call myself Mystic Mark here on the podcast but yeah I started making all these crystal wraps when I was in Colorado because yeah, I that's need awesome I needed money to get out of, get home. And, and that's all I had on me were some of my crystals and some wire. And, and I just put it together and started selling, selling them at these shops in Colorado. And it's funny. I, I don't know what that is technically on the astro cartography charts. I'd have to go in and ask somebody about the energy there. But, but yeah, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Colorado, you know, being on the Eastern slope or, if you were in like the Denver area, I'm not going to assume like if you're on the Eastern slopes of, of the Rockies, you know, that's called the Rockies. (laughs) So your consciousness, you know, went to rocks, went to coherent rocks. It went to crystals, which are coherent geological formations. And so you were, your frequency literally changed. You start making this beautiful art and Mm -hmm. that art, filled in what you needed for your intention to be completed, which was to get back to new England. Mm. And now you've incorporated that into your, into your being.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it was like a business the same way you described, like going to Costa Rica kind of brought out the business mindset for you. Like, I was making them prior to that, but it wasn't until I got to Colorado that I had a reason to sell them. And I was like, how do I sell these? I got to like market them correctly. I went and bought like index cards and wrote down what they all were. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was like, it was like, you know, something about the Rockies. But (laughs) (laughs) we have a, we have a crystal. We have four crystal bowls here. My girlfriend, it's very adept at playing them and it's a it's a definitely a welcome sound to hear in the apartment. It's nice and calm. But you mentioned putting river water inside of the crystal bowl and seeing the cymatic pattern. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you integrate into your profession, like using these sort of water structured water or or the process of, of changing the structure of water? Like what Yes. Let's get into that. I wanna know because like, for people who don't know, we talked about your 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 sort of um history and, and what you did in school, but you were going to school for architecture. I don't think you mentioned that. No, no you weren't? No. But your father no, I, your father did. My dad did, okay. yeah. Okay. So when did you get interested in architecture?
1: Well, I was always interested in engineering from a young from when I was a little kid, just because my dad was an architect and he built skyscrapers. So I got to go to lots of testing for hurricane proof materials because on these buildings that are, you know, stand 25 to 30 stories tall in South Florida, they have to have like windows and siding and all these things that can handle at least in the 80s and 90s they had like they had to have ratings of uh, 125 plus miles per hour winds like sustained winds so one of my f- most fun memories as a little boy was my dad taking me to them testing these windows that they were putting up in, at the time on the lar- in the tallest building in Fort Lauderdale Florida on one of his jobs and they shot this two by four at 125 miles per hour at a piece of glass and I got to watch the glass just wobble like like you know the first matrix where they you see the glass ripple and I got to see that in real life and so I was just amazed and I was always amazed with what my dad could do just with like a block and tackle like my dad built the whole like extra extension to our house. I grew up in just him and a block and tackle. So he was lifting huge beams and he showed me as a little boy, like the, the force multiplier of a pulley system. And I got into remote control cars, like when I was about 10 years old and I fell in love with everything electronic So I got, my grandfather got me a remote control car, a remote control plane. I had remote two, I had four remote control cars, dirt cars, road cars. And then I got a remote control boat. Like I was, I was Mr. RC, like to the point where my dad told me you're either going to do the RC stuff or you're going to do sports. You have to choose. Cause you're, you're way, you're, you're way too much (laughs) on this side. Right. And so I really, I, I had the engineering propensity. Like I love ripping everything down and then building it back up. And my dad made sure I had like a nice tool bench and I had good tools and he showed me like how to solder things correctly. And then getting into high school, hurricane Andrew hit South Florida. And when Hurricane Andrew hit, it, 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 it was the first, my first taste of disaster capitalism because the whole area in construction was kind of depressed and the hurricane hit and it was this massive construction boom. And for like a couple of years, they had all these things coming on the news about hurricanes and stuff like that. And one was this, it was an awesome thing that 60 Minutes did on this, this guy who built this dome and how his dome home in North Carolina survived this massive hurricane. And my dad and I were just like amazed by this huge dome structure. And then I would go to Epcot, like I told you, as a little boy, and they had the big sphere. So they did the Bucky Ball, but they did like the full Bucky Ball. You know, they call most geodesic domes Bucky Balls or a Bucky Hemisphere. Mm. And here, the Epcot dome, the Epcot ball, was a full Bucky Ball, and it was known as a nine-frequency Bucky Ball. So I always had like domes in the back of my mind, and hurricanes, and how to survive storms, and had a little bit of some mechanical know-how but then also being an a- athlete like a lot of, a lot of times being an athlete it's about your proprioception it's about your awareness of your body in space and so that really helped me in kind of just being aware of like what physically feels right and what physically doesn't feel right and then the big push that brought me fully into architecture was losing all my money in Costa Rica. And I was like, what can I build with the money that I have? (laughs) And I looked at all these different building styles relative to what I saw fail there. And I was like, domes are the way to go. Like domes by far handle hurricanes and, and tornadoes and earthquakes better than any other structure. And then I love the principle behind all these curved structures, because there's a principle in nature called conservation of surface area. Like in nature, the reason why everything is curved is because it's extremely energy intensive to make something flat and straight. Like it's totally not environmentally friendly (laughs) to try and make something flat and straight. It's not strong and it's extremely energy intensive to do it. And that's why I'm like, I'm looking out my window now, and there's nothing in the natural world that is flat and straight. So,
0: and I don't want to go off on a tangent because I feel like I'm interrupting. But what what's the fascination with these cubes then? Because that's all like ninety percent of architecture is like cube and square based, right?
1: It's my dad actually told me. My dad was a Bauhaus He was trained in the Bauhaus school of architecture at Florida State University. And it was all for population control. Mm. Like it, 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 he, when he was in architecture school, they made you design all the furniture that was in every room of every, you know, let's say structure that you were going to build. So it was like, you're thinking fully throughout the building. And it was a way to uniform. It was to make everything uniform so that you could have one person controlling it at the top. Where in the past, we had these guilds of master craftsmen that had artistic leeway, and that you would go into a space and look at the the terrain, and you would build to fit the terrain. You wouldn't build to dominate the terrain. And the Bauhaus method was, was instituted to actually dominate the, the the rationale of man to make it submissive and it worked like all the condos my dad abhorred living on the east coast of of florida or the east coast of broward county because all he saw were what he saw in college which was these condominiums where everybody was stuck in a in a cube right and he would do whatever he could to live out in the western part of the county where you could build your own structure, you could live on a little land, you could kind of spread your legs, you weren't like, you know, fully up on somebody else's crawl all the time. And he, like, he, w- he went to college in the 60s, you know, like this was something that had been well, well planned and well instituted. So we live in cubes by design. From, from a manufacturing, from a post-World War II perspective, if you want to maximize profit, you get rid of master master craftsmen. You you have everything from a top-down perspective. You essentially build modular things and you sell those modular things through salesmen. And who, who cares how it interacts with the environment? That's not your problem. Your problem is just to give people volume to live in.
0: Yeah. Well, what about domes make them so resistant to hurricanes? And don't you think there'd be like maybe a little incentive or is it because of disaster capitalism where they're like, who cares if it gets destroyed? It's worth more for us to go in and rebuild it.
1: Well, you know, the U.S. was built on disaster capitalism, whether it was war induced disaster or natural disaster, like everything. I shouldn't say everything. The majority of the the financial drivers in the money making world are all based on disaster capitalism. It's not profitable to make something that is engineered for the environment because if it is engineered for the environment, it will last longer. (laughs) It, it, It will need less repairs, less maintenance. And in all honesty, they're much simpler to build. So like I'm designing domes right now for my first clients in the United States. And when I show them the geometry, initially they get like a little bit like overwhelmed by the geometry. Like I think I've sent you some pictures on on telegram of of like just the base geometries of these domes but once you understand the basis of it it's so easy like i got into it because it's 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 under Schauberger's axiom it's nature is simple efficient and easy she really is she doesn't waste she, there's an economy with everything that she shows us, and uh, what happened to the hyper male diamagnetic? We're going to conquer ah the empire. Everything got very right angly vertices, like just everything became like this. Essentially, they they say architecture is frozen music. <laughs> the The music that got frozen from an empire perspective would be like very, very loud rock and roll music.
0: Or like that key that they play in horror movies. (laughs) You know, that noise. That's what I think of when I see like, uh, I don't know if you've been to Connecticut, but in Connecticut we have right along where I-95 and I-91 meet. So everybody drives through, sees it. This huge, huge, like, I think it was the Goodyear Tire Factory back in the day, and they designed it in this architectural style called Brutalism, where things are particularly made the way you described, like, with that intention of, like, this is going to dominate the landscape, you know, bleak, very, like solid and like mute colors and almost like built in a way that it imposes itself on the people who go in and out of the building like it's meant to make you feel small so to speak right and uh, it's a a really interesting building because it's shaped from one side like an i and then the other side like an h or or like a o with like a center like it's literally like hell like the second i guess like the fourth fifth sixth and seventh floors are all suspended away from the first second and third floor and then the four where the fourth floor would be it's just two beams holding up the the fifth sixth seventh and eighth so it's a strange looking building and they recently turned it into a hotel but it's my understanding that brutalism is like that what you described is it boss house or ball house Mm -hmm, house. mixed with communism right like the communists (laughs) took that and they were like all right let's let's get go and take it up a notch.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it was kind of cool for me because I was looking into how could I build for myself in an affordable way. And I read this book from called the, I think it was like the guide to earth bag building. And it had this Iranian gentleman who had, who had figured out this super Adobe system. And he was a, he was a skyscraper builder, like my dad. That after, in 1981, I guess there was a huge earthquake in Tehran, Iran, like the capital of Tehran. And he watched a lot of these massive buildings that his construction firm was a part of fall to the ground. And what he saw, the only thing that was left in the wake of this massive earthquake were all these beehive kilns that that either pottery people were using, potters were using, or... Bread bakers, and he goes, "Why am I wasting my time building these massive erections of steel and in, in, in glass when simple clay, if you shape it the right way, can survive, you know, a massive earthquake?" And so he devised the system of super adobe. And the second I read that book, I was hooked. And because all I saw in Costa Rica was an abundance of clay. (laughs) The red clay is everywhere. And I was just like, well, if I have land and I have no money, I have time. I have no money. I can learn the skill and I have the material. And so I started drawing all the different types of, of house layouts that I wanted. And then one of my massage clients saw one of my designs. And he's like, that's the exact house that I've been dreaming about. And I said to him, I was like, well, if you send me to school to learn how to do it, I'll build it for you. And he did. He sent me to CalEarth and I I was in one of the last classes of Ileona Kalili, who was Nadir Khalili's wife, the guy that I'd been reading all about with the Super Adobe. And uh, yeah, they were amazed because I went there and I took the practice, I I took the extra time and and they were like, so wh- why are you learning this? And I was like, well, I'm I'm actually going to build this structure that you see right here. And they were like, what are you talking about? You're going to build it. And I'm like, I came here to learn the system to actually implement it. Like, I'm going to build it. And then I was surprised. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, and they're like, well, most people, they're like maybe one in a hundred people that come to our workshops actually do anything with it. Really? Uh, I go, no, I'm literally going back to build this thing. Yeah. And it was like super advanced. It it was like two-story domes with massive, massive deck. And uh, we built it. We built that in, in April. We started construction in April of 2008. And we were done by September of 2008. And that was my first... Like that was probably my biggest dome project that I've ever done. We moved over a hundred meters of material and compacted that into three domes <laughs> wow. and that house isn't going anywhere. I'll tell you that. I mean, and the, you, ent- the
0: entire structure is made of, of clay, of this adobo.
1: It's so adobe technically adobe. is clay and sand mixed where you bake it, where they call it super adobe, the technical name of super Adobe is flexible form rammed earth construction. Mm-hmm. So you can make Adobe by cooking it, or you can make Adobe by ramming it. And so we take these long bags, like you ever see those, like a polyethylene sacks that people put agricultural products in. Mm-hmm. And they usually cut them. So they're like this big, this big or whatever. Well, you can buy the roll that makes those bags mm. and use that roll as a form. And so whatever the shape is of my wall, I'll just lay, I'll lay markers down where we're going to lay the bag. We backfill the bag and then we compact it. And so I can have an above ground footer system, which is very, very salient to earthquakes. Cause usually what happens in a, in a conventional building, whatever you have at, at ground height and in the ground is working against your roof. So if you have shear, which is the buildings moving laterally like this, the roof and the floor go in opposite directions. Right. It's like a counterbalance. It's like when you're, when you're kicking, like as a martial artist, right? If you're throwing a front right kick, you're, you're actually sending part of your weight back to, so that you can extend through your kick, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is the same in nature. So if something is being pushed, the top is being pushed one way, which is what wind will do, the ass of it will kick out in the direction that it's being pushed from. Mm -hmm. And this is called shear strength. And that's why domes are so resilient, because what they figured out with domes, and this is why nature uses domes with everything, is that if you have shear, the whole thing moves as one which is what the term monolithic comes from. It moves as one piece. You don't get the parallelogram effect that you get with masonry or post and beam construction.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's why when we have these great reset earthquake situations, everything's just left as rubble. And uh, yeah, it, it makes you wonder, like, maybe they plan for this kind of thing because they know it's worth more for them to go in and rebuild it than it is to have something that lasts for thousands of years. If they're thinking from this profit first mindset that seems to at least be a part of this country I'm in. Are you still, are you in the States right now? Or are you down in the, in another country? What's your, your location? I oh, you said in, you're in the Ozarks. You told me uh, that. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Next week we're moving to Missouri. So yeah, we, we bought a farm in Missouri and it's, it's, it's like the perfect permaculture farm. It has lots of water. It's near water. So I'm super stoked. Mm. We've been living in this, in this spot for about a year now, but the farm that we initially bought, it did, it doesn't have enough water. So everything I've learned from a permaculture perspective, I've, I've been jonesing for a farm that has its own springs and is near other big bodies of water. Cause mm. you know, I, 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 really believe water is extremely important yeah. <laughs> for, for everything. Yeah. We- but I, I wanted, I wanted to give you a little insight that you probably already know is all these massive structures, like, just for example, like the pyramids that we know of and, say, some of these cathedrals, they all use these principles where you can still have straight lines, like you can still build something, you know, a vertical element. But like in, in the case in point of a cathedral, they have these things called buttresses and flying buttresses. And so if, if you see the way they frame all these buildings that look very straight from the outside, the internal aspect of them have all these arches, even like the Coliseum from Rome, you know, you have this circular Coliseum and it has all these arched openings all over the place. And like the next, my, my dream home that I'm going to build for us is like, I, I've Not only do you save on material, but every time you create an arch form, you create an incredible dissipation of, of, of vertical forces. And so you can really kind of, you can take a more conventional structure and just really, when I say conventional, a more rectilinear structure and you can really firm it up by adding arches and vaults and certain things like that in certain areas and then the the building will be much more resilient.
0: Mm. Yeah, now when you say a flying buttress, is there can you help me visualize that cuz I see it in my mind but I'm not sure if I'm thinking of the right one. Is this the the horizontal beam that kind of is in between the the like the the shafts that go up to make the arch? Is that like kind of like the base that holds them in the middle?
1: No, the flying buttress would be like, so if you have the the vertical, let's just say the cube that's elongated making a spire. Mm -hmm. And then you have these triangles off the side that go like this. And then you see arches, arch forms Mm -hmm. that actually keep that vertical area that has all the mass from moving laterally gotcha so you have the you actually have the triangular form that is stopping whatever forces are trying to make that that box move like this it stops it from doing that and then if it does move it dissipates its music once again it'll go from one arch to two arches to three arches to four arches and it will dissipate that that shock wave that that musical note down to the ground, to where it dissipates, to where it won't affect the main structure. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow, yeah. It's, it certainly feels that way when you're in a cathedral, that the whole building is a musical instrument. But when you put it in these terms, it's it's not even a matter of, of words. It's the truth. It's, a, it's an instrument. Now, when it comes to this, well, at least what's been really fascinating me lately is that these stone structures here in New England, some of them stone chambers they're built with corbels or corbelled I think is the term ceilings that work in the same way as an arch right. so that the you know weight is dissipated and some of these structures the theories go from well the natives built them to the colonists built them to oh no some Europeans who are here a really long time ago built them but what's really fascinating and I'm wondering what you think about this is they've they've determined that they're not ice cellars, which is the colonial explanation, because the sun comes through a certain portion of this during the winter time when you would think that, you know, you would you wouldn't want things to be melting in there. But it's interesting because you mentioned the tilt. The sun sort of tilts, it goes and the moon does the same thing. And these stone chambers are usually aligned to receive the sun during the winter when you would want to warm the structure up because it's colder out. But yeah, it's, it's, it's still undetermined whether or not they were actually living in there. It doesn't seem like people were living in there. It seems like they were more of like transformative, mental play, like places to go to meditate or to even keep track of certain you know time, like a calendar, you see the sun come through, you know, okay, it's this time of the year. But have you looked into that at all? These sort of megalithic stone structures seems like you have. What, what have you learned?
1: I've been fascinated with this forever. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very lucky. I went to probably the only public school for geopolymers in the world. It's called the Geopolymer Institute in Saint-Michel, France. So in northern France, uh, about an hour away from the, the Belgian border. Joseph Davidovits Dr. Joseph Davidovits figured out in the 70s that the majority of the rock like quote unquote rock that are in a lot of these megalithic structures and pyramids were actually created they were man-made and it and it's no longer a mystery like I'm not saying this like this is something it's only a mystery to the to the uninitiated let's say. <laughs> like this is something that's being used militaries around the world are using this very very rich people are using this to build their structures and their bunkers. So a, a geopolymer is essentially a man-made stone. So what he had figured out was in 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 egypt on the where the in cairo like where the where the giza plateau is excuse me he went and studied samples of the rock there and he was in, in the, the what remained of some of the casing stones that were there and then the base stones of the of the great pyramid and he was like oh this is this is a polymer this is the they what they did was they created a cement that wasn't an alkaline cement they created a binder that was actually an acidic binder and he was <laughs> he was he was ousted from from Egypt by the late 70s because he was like he pretty much showed the that everything that they were pushing about the slave narrative to build the the pyramids was absolutely false it was actually, and now, now that they've unearthed more of the Giza Plateau, they see that it was actually like this incredible artisanian village of, of master master mason workers. But what they were doing was, was that they would farm the calcium components from the Nile River, from all the crustaceans in the Nile. Then there was a massive, massive, cal- I believe it was bentonite clay which is a more calcium-rich clay, deposits just north of Giza. And then the Sahara Desert, at the time that these things were being built, was actually a forest. It was the world's largest forest. And so they would cut the trees down and burn the trees to make fly ash. And then they would mix the fly ash with a material known as natron. And the natron with the fly ash, with the sand from the Nile river, with the, with the calcium that they were getting from the crustaceans. And then from the, then the, the calcium bentonite clay, when you combine all this in the right ratios, it hardens into limestone.
0: Wow. And limestone is this like fantastic material. It, it, it's antimicrobial. Most of human civilizations are built around it, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Wow.
1: So, and there was always this mystery around, it wasn't only just in, in Egypt or in North Africa where they were finding pyramids. You know, there's pyramids pretty much on every continent. Right. And it wasn't until he saw these pyramids down in South America, I believe in Peru, Forever archaeologists were trying to figure out what this indention on the right side of all these stones, I forget what pyramid it was, and you know, for years and years and years they were mulling over, what's, what does this indention mean? Why would the people that, that carve these rocks out of the earth and then move these huge limestones, why would they make these indentions on all the limestones? He's like, "No you idiots, that's what happens when you when you put a brace against a form board and you have something solidifying and I've poured thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of concrete and I know this to be true. you put form boards up, you have to put pressure on the outside of the form board to handle the weight of, of the of the slurry that you're putting in. And so the second I heard him say this and make that connection, I was like, holy shit, this guy's got it. All they were doing was they would pour one block and everybody would be coming up with their, you know, their sack of sand, their sack of calcium, calcium carbonate, their sack of calcium bentonite clay, their natron, and they would throw it, they would mix it in place in a form, it would set. And here's the kicker of it, and this is the coolest thing, was you talked to a lot of people that theorize that the outside of the pyramids had dark casing stones. And the dark casing stones would attract heat. They would pull heat in. Well, if you heat a geopolymer, it cures like 10 times as fast. So, I bet you they, as they were building it, they just kept, they would, they would mix in a darker pigment into the outer casing stones as they were going up and they would let the sun bake it in place.
0: <laughs> yeah. And there so, is. A, so, in-
1: the whole like, you know, ancient aliens thing or like, you know, all the different things of like, you know, priests levitating limestone from quarries that have never been found. They they found quarries in areas near there, but nowhere near the amount of volume of limestone that was taken out of the ground, even comes close to what is above the ground. Yeah. And he figured this whole system out. And then he was able to show that the Romans used a derivation of that with their aqueduct system and a lot of their buildings. And what was so cool about it was, the the geo you can make a geopolymer to kind of match the ph of the environment that it's in so when you do that like let's say you're making a cement like a geopolymer that's going in water if you know the relative ph of that water and you make your slurry the same way the water won't erode it the wow. water won't oxidize it wow
0: so yeah would we would we assume then that maybe the environment of Egypt has changed over the vast amount of time that it's been there cuz they do talk about the erosion on certain structures like the sphinx showing possibly like flooding in that area would that be maybe like knowing what you just described yeah. maybe could help us understand more about the sphinx in an accurate way rather than you know assuming that it's 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 been built without that ph in mind
1: Well, the Sphinx is funny because I think that's why he got kicked out of Egypt. Mm. They were showing like, they're like, look, there's all these seashells in the side of the rock. So that shows that like 12,000 years ago during the deluge that this area was flooded to this height. And he's like, no, you dipshit. The whole reason why there's all these embedded crustaceans in them is because they use the crustacean shells in their mix. Wow, And I, I know this to be true because in South Florida, all of our roads have seashells in them. Mm. You'll go up to something solid. You'll go up to a concrete road and there's quadrillions of broken up seashells in them. Really? So the second, yeah, because it's calcium. All yeah. a seashell is, is calcium. Right. My new company in the States is called Coral Domes. I'm building aircrete domes. And the whole thing is, it's all, all By weight, if if you're just to be like a a chemist about it, by weight, cement is mostly calcium. And that's what coral is. It's mostly calcium. It's a binder. Mm. And so given the right solution, that will bind anything that you connect to it. Right. So that's the way our bones are built. Now,
0: I want to go back to... New England, because what you're saying about the, the megaliths is fascinating, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of those techniques were integrated up here. But in particular, maybe you've seen there are several standing stones, which are glacial erratics is what geologists call them. Huge stones that are just happen to be resting upon three smaller stones. You know, we're talking a 30-ton boulder and it's just precariously resting on one, two, three, maybe 400-pound stones, right? And and what happens is scientists have found that there's a pasoelectric effect going on where maybe these natives would have been aware of that and they would have put their seeds underneath this giant boulder and the pasoelectric energy would have, you know, made the seeds more abundant when they went to crop.
1: Absolutely. What was the name of the the vaulted space that you're bringing up earlier that was mm. underneath the cathedral spaces? What was that called again? That you said the sun would shoot into? Oh, the
0: stone chambers. Yeah, in New England. There's a bunch What's of stone chambers. What's the name chambers? of those
1: chambers though? I, you used a you used a very specific term. Huh. I don't remember. Oh, corbelled.
0: The corbeld. yeah.
1: Okay. So corbel, piezoelectric, and these things that you're talking about—these like essentially these huge rune stones that are that are you know propped up—that's all for piezoelectricity. So, so what you do, like we started our conversation talking about scalar physics or ether physics, where you engineer the environment to give you the the actual product of what you want, okay? So these corbelled roofs are amazing, the geometry, because I build vaults, I'm a profes- professional vault builder. So they're a vault on four axes that connect to these, these, I'm calling them geopolymer rods or posts that connect to another layer of masonry it's usually over some sort of internal body of water. Most of these buildings have sunken cisterns, or they're over channeled water. And so, what these, what they are essentially doing was was making a very advanced geopolymer piezoelectric generator. Because a lot of these buildings, especially if we're talking about cathedrals that have the corbels or what they call bathhouses, they all had uh, musical instrumentation that was up high. So that would vibrate and saturate the building and then the whole building would vibrate. The whole building would take on a vibratory pattern and that vibratory pattern, because of the shape of the building, could be transduced into intention like let's say it was like the you know december 21st solstice and the light was the lowest on the horizon and was coming in you could really get a lot of work done through the subtle subtle energy fields with these types of structures and they 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 knew the sky much better than we do now you know they didn't have as much false light as we do and a lot of their entertainment was actually like looking up looking up at the sky and knowing their interaction with the seasons and knowing their interaction with their environment and depending on it and having reverence for it. And so I don't believe for one second that there were glaciers that moved a massive 30-ton rock on top of three smaller rocks.
0: I I'm with you and I'd love to show you some photos Tara and I, we discovered a glacial erratic yesterday. And I've never seen this in any of the books we've bought. No one's talked about this. It's not in like native legends, but we found this crazy looking stone on top of another stone. And you mentioned before that, you know, you didn't think that maybe they were levitating these, but what what would your speculation be on how they came to to get those in that place do you think they were levitating them in certain cases and and not in like egypt for example because that's that's at least what the folklore says right that the shaman meditated and lifted this stone and put it in place you think there's a more material explanation or or a logical explanation for it
1: there's a lot of different explanations so have you ever heard of lead who built the coral castle down Mm -hmm. in miami yeah So that was down in my neck of the woods. And he was using, for lack of a better term, an electrogravitic effect where he was essentially, he was creating a vibration, a lot like Keeley would. And then he would create a harmonic that when that harmonic interacted, you have to be somewhat of a material scientist, would interact with these big slabs of coral he knew the harmonic that was necessary to essentially cancel from our perspective, the mass or the weight of it. And so there were all like, I mean, legends of him just being able to move a rock just with, with his little device and a stick. Is there the capacity for a bunch of priests to go out there and sing things into place? I think so. Do I think that was the the art priori? No. I actually look at it more especially with the what I know about like the Native American rain dances and the rhythmic dances that occur from the Shipibos and stuff like that that I've been exposed to. It always induces weather phenomenon. And I've seen very, very unique things occur to certain types of rock relative to the weather that the the, the human generates. And so there's this phenomenon all throughout Central America of essentially these perfect geopolymer spheres. And... There's all these bullshit explanations of what these spheres are. Oh, I've seen them.
0: They're huge. Some of them, right? Like they're they're gigantic and they're perfectly symmetric or spherical, right? Yeah. Some of them are embedded in the ground. Others are kind of like on the surface.
1: Right. Wow. So one thing I noticed, like you know, gallivanting and all these uh, these big waterfalls that I live next to was. When you're on the bedrock of some of these waterfalls the majority of them have these perfect cylinders that go down into them and i would notice and i would put my hand in there and sometimes i get bit like by a crayfish or something but most of the time it was perfectly smooth and the way the water was flowing it wasn't like an eddy current was drilling out the rock It was just, it was like a perfect cylinder.
0: I've seen these on the Susquehanna River. Michael Wan, Emily Moyer's friend, took us to a place where they have these. And then my girlfriend and I found some at Shelburne Falls in Massachusetts. So I've seen these. Yeah. And the the stone is incredibly hard. And you're like, water did not drill a perfectly circle hole into this.
1: So you're going to get a kick out of this. So, I was on my friend's farm and he was he had his farm was at about 3500 feet of elevation, about 1100 meters up. And he lived on this beautiful farm where the bridge of his farm was up at about 4000 feet. And this big storm was rolling in and we were we were hiking in the jungle and he's like, "Come on, I know where there's protection." So we went to this one waterfall and behind the waterfall was a cave. So, and it was just a little cave. It was enough where like two dudes could like squat down and we could watch the lightning. Cause there was a lot of lightning. And so we get behind his waterfall and we're like laughing our asses off because, you know, we're, we're just getting pelted with rain and there's so much lightning. It was so invigorating. And then boom, this huge bolt of lightning hit right in front of the water of the waterfall. And when we look down, the rock where it hit was one of these cylinders and it was glowing and i was like immediately i knew how the spheres were formed so at least in the rainforest i can't speak for other areas i was talking earlier about bauxite clay well bauxite clay is iron oxide when you make magnets, they, they use this system called radial. they call it sintering, where they send a massive amount of voltage through a piece of metal in the direction that that voltage goes through is what magnetizes all the, the metal molecules in that direction. And what makes it a magnet at that point is that all of those you know, particles of metal are all now facing the same direction and they've been traumatized. (laughs) So they pull in one direction and push in another direction. Well, when you do that same thing to bauxite clay, what does it do? Instead of creating a rod or whatever, it creates a sphere. Whatever, whatever, like whatever bauxite it hits, it condenses it perfectly into a plasma ball and then it hardens it into an igneous rock. And they've done this, like there's a ceramic companies that make these little igneous balls of ceramic by doing this. And they literally do that. They use the, the process of shocking the way you would make a magnet, but they do it over iron, iron oxide. And, you know, well, I should, be, I should be very specific with this. Oxide clay is a combination of iron oxide, magnetite, and aluminum silicate so i was immediately i was like okay every waterfall i've been to here has these cylinders that's obviously formed by lightning i just watched it happen i just watched lightning you know discharge and if you've ever been close to a lightning strike you know some of the energy is coming up out of the ground and some of it's coming down at the same time and they kind of meet like just above the ground so i was like okay this is a highly negatively ionized space because of the waterfall that a- attracts the discharge between the ground current and, and the positive polarity of the sky. So now you have these cylinders that are created near these negatively ionized areas in the riverbed. Well, lightning's striking all in the forest, too. So whether the when the lightning hits the riverbed, it creates these cylinders. And when lightning hits the the, the ground, if it doesn't hit the actual tree or something and discharges through the ground, that's how these spheres are made. So
0: is this how they create like ball bearings in an industrial setting? Like, are they, cause like they're not shaving like these things down. Like you said with ceramics, like does this apply out into other material sciences? Because I've always wondered like how do they make these perfectly spherical marbles and ball bearings and like are they using electricity to do that?
1: I don't know. I've never I've never looked into how they make the ball that goes in a ball bearing. I yeah. should ask. There's a ball bearing company right down the road. I I could go in there and <laughs> see if they know. Huh. But I, I was studying it because I was building clay homes. So I was looking into ground discharges and stuff like that. And also in Costa Rica, because the ground is so paramagnetic, hmm. uh, whenever you really need to create a ground current for your electrical system, you have to really change the soil that you put your grounding rods in. Hmm. The normal paramagnetic soil doesn't discharge well. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was incredible because then I was also learning that in massage. I was like, why can't I find my grounding? Like I can't ground easily when I'm working on people's bodies. And so the earth building that I was doing was helping me ground out because I was literally, you know, at least three, four times a week have my feet, you know, moshing on earth to mix my cob mm, you know <laughs> right and that real that really helped me learn what it feels like to be grounded because when your bare feet are moshing through clay and sand and you know natural fibers for a few hours a day it becomes a massive contrast to when like you your feet are insulated from the ground
0: well and, and- isn't that why a lot of people have back and knee problems? Because we insulate our feet and then the, the static electricity like gets stored in our back and on our knees. And if you're not grounding uh, periodically, it creates issues over
1: time. I absolutely think so. We're always being positively ionized with the screens and the Wi-Fi and all that stuff. And so the ground is negative the ground has a a net negative charge so when we walk on it barefoot whatever extra charge we put in she can handle it she can take it and she will take it and so i have a lot of electrosensitive friends i have i think i'm electrosensitive but i can dissipate it by gaining weight Like I find when I'm in an electro-polluted area, I gain weight. Like my body adds an insulator to block it. But I have lots of clients that I've put biochar, which is like a a very specific type of carbon, in their walls to block EMF frequencies. And almost all of them are ungrounded. (laughs) Almost all of them don't ever really get their bare feet on the ground for more than 15 or 20 minutes a day, mm, right. which is what you need. I would say a bare minimum.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I try to hike barefoot as much as possible. It, definitely. It's hard to do in this climate, but it's it's definitely refreshing in the winter. So you're seeing this right now. Am I sharing my screen yeah, with you? So check this out. This is a boulder we found yesterday. And it's pretty large, as you can see me standing next to it. And uh, that stone finger there is pointing due west, exactly west. And like you can see, it's situated on top of another stone. And from this angle, kind of looks like a duck almost. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is this is an example of one of those so-called glacial erratics. and And it's in a place where I would imagine it'd be very hard to <laughs> just end up there of all places and, and, and have that weird shape too. So I don't know quite where this fits in, but it, it's interesting in connection to what we were talking about earlier and and then, yeah, that piezoelectric force that, you know, now that we're, we're talking about magnetism and whatnot, maybe that can explain why it's aligned to the West. I mean, I don't... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just one of these things that hasn't been looked at by major archaeologists. Like we have a bunch of these stone structures around New England and they seem to be ignored by archaeologists.
1: They're probably intentionally ignored. Right. Right. I
0: wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that at all. <laughs> this is the the colonial, you know, this is where all the colonial prejudices were formed right here in New England. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if it's colonial like, you know, my, my family and my wife's family is from that area of the world. In fact, the last time I was in Massachusetts, my sister took me to, she's in Marshfield, Massachusetts, which is about an hour outside of Boston. And she took me to the, the, the town that our family came over. It wasn't on the Mayflower. It was right after the Mayflower. I'm forgetting what, Plymouth? what the, the, it, the Winthrop fleet was it? It was like, we were there like in the 1630s.
0: Okay. she <laughs> so might've been like a Plymouth or, or, or the Boston one. Something log. like
1: that. Cool. But she took me, she took us to like our great, 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 great grandfather's, you know, estate in Massachusetts. And we have like family lineage all throughout the Northeast and North part of the United States. And now obviously it migrated South. And I come from a family that were very industrious people. And I think, I, I, I don't think the history that we're given about the colonialists are, I don't think any of the history that we've been given is accurate. Mm. I'm of the mind that most of it has been polluted in one way or another to disempower us. Like, I really think that we come from very dignified and very intelligent and very powerful beings. Like, just the fact, I mean, just going back 40 years, seeing my, what my dad could do with a block and tackle. Like, amazing absolutely amazing stuff i think a lot of this the architecture a lot of things that have been built it we're just given a false narrative so it doesn't make any sense the truth of the matter is somebody built it and whoever built it was extremely intelligent (laughs) Mm, right And and extremely skilled and it's the framework the context that they give us for everything is incorrect you know, I, I don't believe that we're the most evolved that we've ever been right now. I don't think we're at the pinnacle of our of evolution. I actually think we come from very evolved beings and they invert everything. Because mm-hmm. I see the pictures of my family from the turn of the 20th century. They all have big jaws and are beautiful and smart. Oh, so I, I, They look intelligent, like their eyes are bright. But like immaculately dressed, you know, simple for the time, like very austere, but like everybody, not one ounce of extra body fat on their body, just like present, like in the picture, like boom. And I'm like, those people are not lower order. I am not more advanced than they are just because I have like a a doohickey that's electronic (laughs) doesn't make me more advanced mm, right like i've heard in some of your podcasts you talk about the the gentleman the native american man that came back to your to your area of the world to to Amos, barry yeah. what's that
0: well now you're saying barry so i'm not sure if you're not, going. not
1: barry the gentleman that went there for what, geronimo Geronimo's? yeah yeah geronimo Amos, yes yes that intelligence that's a technology that the how advanced the native americans were at least the ones that i choose to identify with were with their natural systems stunning i've been in areas of southern india where they had they built monuments where like their shiva goddess would be reaching up to the sky and at certain times of the year she would still be holding the pleiades wow you know like all all over the world, there's like these, these less advanced heathens from the past <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that did absolutely amazing, amazing things. And we're just, we've been fed the materialist narrative. And the way materialism, the only way materialism can work for real is through disaster capitalism. Mm. So the big bankers know that there's nothing new under the sun they go okay that area is old and that area might expose some things that we don't want them to expose let's start a war to destroy it we'll finance both sides and we'll cause the older economies to implode and then or explode and then we'll finance the newer economies and they just play round robin right. in the realm, and it's it's the current model of disaster capitalism doesn't lend us to an accurate way of perceiving history.
0: Mm. Absolutely, well said, man. So I have a few more questions. I don't want to take up all your day, but but do you have some more time for a few more questions? Yeah, yeah, awesome.
1: uh, I can talk forever.
0: Awesome, awesome. So you you sent me a, you mentioned this but you sent me a couple pictures on telegram and i noticed at least one of them and maybe i'm wrong here but it appeared to be octagonal it was an octagonal structure mm-hmm. yeah. what what is there something unique about octagonal structures cuz i know that thomas jefferson was very fond of them he built these octagonal mansions and what's really interesting about them is because of the eight sides it's pretty easy to align them to other eight-sided buildings and you mm-hmm. can actually see that maybe there was some like very large plotting across vast pieces of land where they designed this building to be perfectly, you know, mm-hmm. aligned so that its edge was facing the same edge almost like it'd been placed on a grid uh, you know, but what is that? Is there a reason why they would align these octagonal structures and, and, and why they would want them to be eight-sided?
1: On the very basic side of it, an eight-sided structure is considered a generator. So it's if you look at it, it's actually two squares that are turned at 45 degrees to each other would create an eight-pointed star. And then if you connect all the edges of the star, that gives you an octagon. So there's a doubling effect to structure. So from a Feng Shui perspective, from a Vastu perspective, from the ancient, I guess you would call occulted arts perspective, an eight-sided structure is a constructive energy. Whatever intention you have while you're building it and whatever it whatever, however you are while you're in it, it will multiply that in your environment. So that's just from the structure perspective. And then that depends on the materials that you build it with, because I've built metal octagonal structures and I've built wooden octagonal structures. So that is more of the male Yang energy. It's projecting out. And that would be the equivalent to a spire you know like a a very long cone like let's say a cone with a 72 degree angle or more so in the orgone world that is that is a projection of your intention so octagons are very very powerful in that way on a on a pure layout perspective It's very easy to sync one octagon with another, especially if you line them to the cardinal points, the cardinal directions, because all your cardinal directions say north, south, east, west, they don't move on a compass. Okay. And then your northwest, southwest, northeast, southeast are just 45 degrees off of that. So another way of looking at an octagon is you have a cube where you cut off the corners. So this is another way that you can encode the, 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 the Saturn archetype of structure where it's like, there's very specific directions. Once again, we're in the male mind. There's very specific intention. There's we're going this direction. Yeah. And that, that's why it's seen as a, a as a generative space to be in. I I've, I've built I naturally flow towards round structures or curved structures, vaulted structures because instead of only having say, you know, four directions of a cube or eight directions of an octagon, when you go in a circle you have infinite directions. Mm. So then you have a much greater capacity to have dynamic disequilibrium, which means flow state. So I'd never answered your question earlier about a dome. A cool thing about a dome, the reason why they're so resilient is because there's no vertice inside or outside that energy can get stuck on. So what causes roofs to pop in windstorms has not a lot to do with the wind getting under the roof. What is actually happening is the roof ends up acting like a wing, where the surface area on the top of the roof is greater than the surface area below the roof. This creates low pressure, and it pops the roof off. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that's, that's incredible. And to
0: think about it like that, I've actually, I've seen that happen to my tree fort, Hurricane Sandy that, that happened to us. We had this really cute tree house. It wasn't anything special, but it was nice. And I was looking out my back window and the tree house roof just went pop like a, like someone popped a champagne bottle. It was, it was incredible.
1: Yeah. I think it's called Bernoulli's principle of the ring. With a wing is when you have an airspeed that's going over the top that there's greater surface area and then you have the same airspeed going underneath, you get low pressure and it creates lift. Mm, right. And that's why whenever you look at a wing, especially jets, they're like a teardrop. Mm. They start fat in the front. And this is also a Schauberger effect. They they stole uh, Schauberger's <laughs> ideas, which were just nature. But essentially, if you were to take a cross-section of a teardrop, that's what, like an elongated teardrop, that's what it looks like. So you get a positive ionization and a negative ionization, and you get low pressure and high pressure, and you get lift and thrust.
0: Mm, Right. Now, you mentioned the the octagon being like a cube with its corners cut off, and there's a octagonal fountain in New Haven, and I've been... Looking at the the layout of New Haven for a long time now, just trying to contemplate why they would make the city the way it is, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but they created it in a nine square grid. And this ended up being sort of economically not the best decision for them. It it cost them a lot of money in the early days of the colony. It was not an efficient layout for a city. It took a lot of resources to get things from one side to another. And they still have the basic layout, but they've sort of cut new streets in between. And in the center, the square was designed so that exactly 144,000 people could stand there during the end days of final judgment, right? So the, mm-hmm. the, the city allegedly was built with like the Temple of Solomon in mind. And, and yeah, I, I've been trying to examine like what other elements are there. Saturnian elements are present. And now that you're saying this about the eight-sided thing, it brings a, a more light to that eight-sided fountain and why it would be there but is there any any thought to the shape of a fountain and like how a fountain, you know, I mean, I'm sure that has to be like a pretty profound aspect of architecture whenever you integrate water into a structure.
1: It's, it's pretty much everything because water is the universal solvent. So let's say you have like an octagonal band stand as they called it, you know, built with marble pillars <laughs> and then you had a fountain in front of it that was in some circular configuration that was coming out of some sort of brass or copper element that encodes Venus, you're, you're essentially in any type of magical or spiritual rite that you would do in that space, you would supercharge it. The water, like whenever you move water and the beautiful thing about a fountain is you're taking water under pressure and then you're releasing it. It's like, it's like a rebirthing. It's like a, it's like the spring of life. You know, you're, you're imitating God because there's no life without water. And so it's very refreshing, especially if there's lots of beautiful elements. A lot of times in courtyards, it will cool the courtyard. If you have lots of rock element around, you know, once again, you have the polarity between the positive polarity and the, and the negative polarity. So I'm not familiar with New Haven at all. I, don't, I I've never looked at the architecture there. But I'm pretty sure if you were to look at whatever the octagonal structure is, you could look at it from a bird's eye and you'd see the octagon. But then if you looked at the elevation of it from its profile, it probably would encode a square, a perfect cube Mm -hmm. because from the height relative to the, the width. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And this, this is, this is, and I'm not even saying that all the, the masons or all the people that were building it know that, but there there it's a way of hiding the the cube cult it's a way of one empowering your intention but two also giving reverence for those who have eyes to see to to the cube
0: yeah and that's why it's really cool to have you here to to Get your opinion and your your insight on these things, because you have the, the architectural and esoteric knowledge in that realm. Now, one other thing that I should bring up, since you don't know much about New Haven, is that that whole center green where the fountain was built used to be the burying ground so there's dead bodies underneath where that fountain is so you have not to mention that but a stream that used to go from that area to the water now it's all underground so we have this underground stream that connects to a a separate fountain that really looks more like a drinking structure and then this other fountain so both of them are connected to this channel underground and there's all this you know sleeping resting souls these sleeping resting souls next to the fountain and it's being pressurized and released right i mean <laughs> isn't isn't new
1: haven like the insurance capital of the world
0: Hartford is, but New Haven and Hartford used to be like basically brother sister capitals of Connecticut. So I'm sure there's a little bit of bleed through. But what yeah.
1: what what the internal instinctual hit that I got while mm. you were describing that was that center is used for massive magical rights.
0: Oh yeah. Well the Yale University is there, Skull and oh, Bones. I didn't know that. Skull and oh, Bones. That's uh, right there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the well, first they, cemetery in American history. This is the first type of cemetery that they created with streets and roads in between, like individual plots. It's the first one of its kind in the United States.
1: Oh, that's probably what's anchoring the the diamagnetic pole in in Northeast. Then mm. that because so when you ever you have running water, you have a current. And if they put it over a burial ground where they actually had like you know chiefs and 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 men of renown, there would be the ka. Their ka, their essence, would be. I won't say enslaved, but their ka would be used for their in, intention. Right. Well, it- that's that's why they do that on these on these mound structures. Is like they'll they'll overtake these mounds because they know that the ka. The life the life energy that the, that was physically embodied they they can harness it with with the frozen music of architecture Wow yeah they, man. and then they'll divert and route waterways because you could look at all these waterways as being the veins and arteries of this plane of existence so it's just like setting up a pump station for your intentions Right. where it's always being fueled with the energy of the earth, where she's sending her water in. And then you have the energy of these men and women of renown. And then that's all being structured by the structure you put on top of it.
0: Yeah. That's Damn. why
1: they always build cities on top of other cities. Yeah. Because these cities are on top of massive power points. Right. So it makes no sense just to go to some area that doesn't have, you know, ley lines or dragon paths. Why don't we go and build on top of structures that we know have already been cultivated for structures? And more than likely, the history had it because these were power points. These were nexus points.
0: Right. And that's. Leading me to what I was going to ask you, finally, about pendulums and and water divining rods and this whole Mm -hmm. science of of divination, finding out where water is underground. You know, it's it's something that kind of borders on the realms of like magic, but also like practical science. Because like my father, for example, works for the water department and that's one of their techniques that they use. They have these you know, weather witching rods. And I remember he showed me when I was a kid and I was so perplexed by this, like, cause my, here's my dad, this like mechanical practical guy who doesn't like go to church, doesn't really talk about stuff like that. And he's showing me like these energy devices. And I'm like, Is this supposed to be magic. Are you show me magic. Like, what? you know, there's like sort of a, a disconnect there, but how... Regular, it, Regularly do you use those energy devices in
1: architecture? Every time I build. Wow. Yeah, I just did a site survey where I used them. So the only reason why it seems like alien or witchy is because we're not taught about our own biology. Your right hand is positive. Your left hand is negative. You hold copper rods. You're creating a horseshoe circuit. Okay. The copper rods usually are is they have a vertical plane, a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. In geometry, that's what you use to locate things. <laughs> copper is conductive. Copper also encodes 5 phi, which encodes water. Copper rules water. That's why having water go through copper pipes is very, very good. It Like if you ever had farm implements and you wanted to be like a biodynamic farmer, you'd make all your farming implements out of copper. Even though it's a soft metal, it doesn't matter. It actually is more healthy for the ground. You'd get a much greater yield with what you're doing just because the copper isn't steel. It's not an amalgam that's cutting and hurting the ground. Mm. The copper actually would induce collagens, add quality to whatever you're sticking it into. And it's because of the water element, which is Venus. <laughs> so this is, gets very alchemical and all this stuff. So here you're holding these divining rods. The dividing rods are using your body positive. Well, we're opposite here. So right hand positive, left hand negative. And I use this in massage with polarity therapy. Right hand's positive, left hand's negative. Thumbs are neutral, positive, negative, positive, negative. So the way the copper naturally lies in your hand, you're not gripping it hard. You're just gripping it naturally. The copper, the vertical axis tunes to the ground, the horizontal access tunes to your body in relation to the ground. Well, guess what? You're like 99% water holding conductive metal. That's water. And you're the body electric when you're walking on the ground. So all you do is sub it's not even subconsciously. You just ask which is stating your intention, which we've been talking about architecture, which is just frozen intention. You're stating your intention. Please show me the water on this property. And man, it, it will show you. It'll come, it'll go ding, 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 ding. And then like, if you come across a dragon path, they'll start to spin counterclockwise. Like there's all these, like, and it's, it's, it's not, witchcraft it's the way we were built we were built to interact with this environment we were given domain over it but it's not the domain that you know the the elitist empire mind talks about it's more like the domain of the the native american that could find shelter and call in the meat when they needed it and hunt it correctly and all these types of things we have this natural symbiotic relationship with the forest and with the rivers and with the trees that we just have to remember it's already programmed into us. And the divining rods are perfect for that. That's like just the basis. Cause you could even like ask how deep is this water? And like you bring the, the rods down to your, down to your waist and like the rods will want to tip, and so you walk away, and the distance that you walk away from that, and they re- elevate, that distance v- horizontally is the distance vertically that the water is down. Wow, it's so accurate. <laughs> In Costa Rica, we had to use them. The the gentleman that showed it to me, he saved his clients millions of dollars from telling them no, they can't build there. They really wanted to build one spot. And he's like, don't no, I won't build there. If you want me to, I'm I'm gonna I, I refuse to. There's water running under there. Mm. And in that environment it's tough because the water is always changing. You know, because it's it the all of the southern zone of Costa Rica is essentially a slip spring. Mm. Up here, where you're in more limestone-rich areas, you get much more aquifer springs. What's what's known as a, a artesian spring. The slip springs are are tricky because that's just when water is going downhill, it, it hits bedrock and it needs to find a way out. That's not from a, from an artesian source. Right. So, yeah, it's awesome. I I love all this stuff.
0: Yeah, dude. Topher, this has been really, really impressive, really tapped me into to the excitement of what is in front of me because here in New England, as I've said a bunch of times, there's so many things that I'm I'm like seeing with new eyes. Mm-hmm. And all of what we've talked about today is like upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. I'm like getting these little upgrades now I can go and re-examine. And I'm really excited. Now, I'm going to send you some pictures on Telegram as I get them, but I'm really excited to show you some of these stone structures to get your opinion on on what could Please be do. going on there. And And yeah, I would recommend to you and anyone listening a book called Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty, and that's where they sort of pose this theory that there's something going on with the electromagnetic nature of these stone structures that helps with farming. And yeah, enough about all that. Where can folks go to see some of the work you've done and maybe learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today? Do you have a website or a place that folks can see pictures and builds and maybe even hire you if they're interested?
1: Yeah, I'm watching toferhq.com So it's, I've done, I don't even know how many podcasts and interviews with people over the years. So that would be sort of a clearinghouse for that. I'm going to be doing like a little science podcast where I'm going into cosmology with uh, people that I really respect. And uh, I used to have a podcast in 2014 and 2015. I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) I just did it because I really respected a lot of minds and it was a way that I could learn. And so um, it's kind of fun because a lot of those people have gotten, you know, pretty, pretty decent followings over the years. So I'm going to get to rehash those connections because I've remained friends with all of them. And they're all in in a different station of life now. And I guess a lot, there's going to be a documentary that's going to be being made about some of the structures I'm building in Missouri and that's going to be on bertaria times well, what is that I don't know the name of the website but all that will be accessible from my from my from my toferhq.com website and yeah then on that people can contact me i do celestic profiling for people mm. i do architecture design for people and uh, yeah that's that's pretty much what I, I have to provide at the moment.
0: Right on so the the celestic profiling, would you
1: does that include the
0: astro cartography stuff at all? No.
1: No, no, I I'm in a pretty interesting position because I can never look at something and just do it the way anyone else does it. Mm. All all my years of studying astrology, I've gotten to the point of I think I figured out the original astrology before it was perverted. Okay. And it's very simple. And it, studying the law, cause I'm studying the law right now. It's kind of brought me to this. It, it, it gave me hints. So in the law, like say you say somebody makes a claim against you and you go to court and you're standing in, for, in front of the judge. If the judge or the bailiff asks you your birthday and you agree that that's your birthday, you are now in a lower jurisdiction. You're in the jurisdiction below the judge, but as a living man, if they ask you your birthday and you deny it, that's you're now signaling the court, which is the crown, that you're not, you're a man in good standing because your birth date isn't your, your actual day of vivality, the day that you became in vivo. The only way in, I shouldn't call it the only way, that's incorrect. You can signal those that want to have agency over you that you're, you're in a higher jurisdiction than them by not allowing them to put their stipulations on you. Mm. So when you use your birthday, that's signaling to them that you see yourself as a slave. Even if you don't know that's what it is, that's what it is because they've been training people for the last hundred years to identify with their birth date. The truth of the matter is you came alive upon conception. And in law, a living man has the highest jurisdiction. So, if you claim to be of your birth date, you're at, you're considered dead. You're considered a corporeal entity. Right. If you don't, if you say no, that that isn't my in vivo day. They can't hold. They can't hold claim over you because you're not corporeal. And there's, all, there's a million ways to skin a cat. I was just saying that that fact was one of the hundreds of facts that brought me into doing conception astrology, where on your birthday, you look 40 weeks prior. And I studied that for a few years and I do real sky astrology. I don't use ephemerae that use averages. So that means like, I can look at the sky and understand what's there and get like okay I know that's Neptune and the moon and they're in the constellation Pisces like I I can tell that from the sky like <laughs> that was what was going on for my daughter on on her on her date of birth and in conception astrology you look you look at what the template was that you came in with when you were conceived. And that gives a very specific profile that gives a much more accurate profile than let's just say your natal chart. Cause your natal chart is more describing what I would call your persona. It does have relevance to you, but it's more, it's the superficial aspect of you that the world interacts with Mm. whereas your celestic profile i call it celestic profile because celestic means you're you're actually looking at real sky observances and and then the profile is just like this is god's template for you this is the core of why your dharma why you are here and i had a hunch for this for about the last eight years since i've been studying the law and then it got confirmed by another astrologer because I brought it up to her. It's actually uh, Chance's court astrologer, Kaylee. I actually, I, I've been having ongoing conversations with her and I was like, Kaylee, what do you think about my idea? And after like a month or two of, of researching it, she came back to me with this whole like 12-page treatise from the Rosicrucians and this is exactly how the rosicrucians would would calculate somebody's chart and once you start to get into the history of the rosicrucians you're like okay these people know a lot <laughs> and they know a lot that they don't they, that they do not share
0: it's so funny that we got here because my research has brought me to learn that Yale was founded by members of the Royal Society and funded by members of the Royal Society and then inhabited by members of the Royal Society for a while. So, wow, that's incredible. And the Rosicrucians, I should say, created like the idea that became the Royal Society. So there's sort of right. a connection there, but uh, but wow, that's incredible. So you got me hooked. I'm interested. I want to get a session. I want to learn, you know, what is my Dharma? Cause I I feel like I've, I've understood my persona through astrology pretty well, but I've never had that moment of like, yeah, this is me from astrology, you know? Uh, And
1: you're coming into that perfect time of your Saturn return. Cause from, from the standpoint of your conception, you are in your Saturn return.
0: Right, right. Wow. You got to put it back 40, 40 weeks, reverse it.
1: Yeah. Very yeah, cool. And th- that's when the spark of life of you, boom, created. Yeah. The the body just manifested the spirit. Your right. spirit was, ta-da! So, yeah, that, that sonoluminescent spark of Mark went boop. And there is a signature in the sky because I look at the sky as just an extension of our greater body mm. And our spine is our axis mundi. So getting back to the Rosicrucians and when you look at their cross and how their crosses encodes the Vesica Pisces, which encodes, you know, the age of Pisces and Christ and all these other things, all this comes down to the, like actually accessing that Christ within like the, 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 the pure divine being that has, but the faith of a mustard seed could move a mountain. Mm. And the reason why they don't let that information out is because it's powerful. And like Rockefeller said, you know, competition should be illegal. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they just don't want competition. It's, mm. it's that simple. They just don't want the competition. So they hide all the truths behind the megalithic sites. They hide all the glory of our ancestry. They hide all of this because if we were coming from that mindset and not the stoned ape theory, we would be empowered to take our shit back.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And this is why my family thinks I'm crazy because I want to compete. I don't want to just go along to get along. I want to compete with Mr. Rockefeller. I want to show them what's, what's good.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you're doing a great job, man. You, you put out an awesome product I'm thank very you. impressed with what you do. So I, I'm, I'm very pleased to be on your, on your show. Dude,
0: Topher, thank you. And this has been, I mean, longer than most episodes go. So for your sake, you're, you're definitely a compelling guest and I want to invite you to come back on again for a continuation of this conversation. There's a few notes that I took that I I didn't get a chance to follow back yet. So let's let's schedule something for the near future. But yeah, everything you just mentioned, links and whatnot, will be in the description. So folks, please go support Topher. Check out what he's got going on. Get yourself a, a reading. Understand your... Remind me again the proper name of this. You called it a... Celestic Profiling. A Celestic Profiling. Perfect. So until next time, folks. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Was a tremendously interesting episode with our guest Topher Gardner. Big shout out to him. Uh, Good buddy now, after talking to him uh, twice. We had another conversation after recording this one. He's a really nice guy. Uh, I could see myself having him on the show uh, many more times. There's so much more that we can get into uh, with his knowledge base, and I have to give a big warm Kind shout out to uh, Chance over at Interverse. It's about time him and I do another show together. And uh, yeah, he introduced me to Topher. So thank you, Chance. And thank you to all of the beautiful, bright, wonderful people who uh, cross pollinate and are part of his community and mine because he is a, a really, really bright light in this podcast. Uh, universe, multiverse, genre, whatever you want to call it. So shout out to you. Shout out to the Innerverse podcast. If you haven't listened to that podcast yet, I've been on it twice, and they've interviewed, well, chances interviewed, some really, really brilliant guests uh, like this one, Topher. If you need more Topher, go and check out the Innerverse podcast and be on the lookout uh, for Topher's podcast Biocharisma, charisma which will be out uh soon he's already getting it all squared away no pun intended he is an architect so i'm sure he has a square but anyways here we are in the outro wrapping up it's almost 4 a.m i gotta stop doing these things so late but i do like recording during the witching hour when everyone is silent Everyone is sleeping. And then I bring that calm, liminal, twilight energy into your day, wherever you are, whatever time you happen to listen to this. Shout out to all of you who may be listening to this on your graveyard shift, or maybe you're a night owl like me in Europe. The hours. Uh, maybe you're across the globe. I haven't given a shout out to our international listeners uh, very much lately, but big shout out to Germany. Recently, had a few German folks jump into the Telegram. Uh, shout out to Israel. <laughs> we had somebody from Israel join, uh, and and they've been listening and they hit me up via email. I I think they joined the Telegram. I'm not sure, but we got people all over the map. It's surprising. Uh, we have people. Even in uh, countries where Asia (laughs) or. Freudian slip. Even in countries where English is not the predominant language, like Asia, uh, not that that's a country, I understand that's a continent, but it's just really cool to see people listening. Obviously, they're English listeners, whether. They speak English well or not, they might be learning for the first time by listening to a cool, crazy podcast like this. Who knows? If you are listening to this podcast to learn English, uh, Ni hao, bonjour, uh, hola, uh, guten tag. uh, um, Those are all of the words I know. I don't think i know any more other languages so if you're an international listener please send me an email let me know where you're from why your family thinks you're crazy and maybe teach me a few words of your language your native tongue so i can properly greet you on the show we have people in africa wow Africa's really filling up for a while there's only a few countries in africa that listen to the show and now we've got the whole western or i'm sorry the whole eastern coast of africa for the most part other than eritrea uh, listens to the show i don't know if they have many people in eritrea or ethiopia listening to podcasts because we only have one download from that whole entire area um sudan as well Uh, Somalia six people maybe those are like boat people they were traveling around Kenya Tanzania Mozambique Zambia Zimbabwe Botswana South Africa we got a lot of people in South Africa compared to the rest of Africa so shout out to all of you in Africa I don't think we've done many episodes discussing african topics and subjects but that is an interest of mine ever since i was a kid i actually really was fascinated by the world specifically africa It's always such a curious spot and uh made me into sort of uh environmentalist a humanitarian learning about all of the uh wild and and tragic and and beautiful and uh, surreal things that have occurred in this amazing place uh, in the past 100, 200, and 1,000 million years even. Uh, Anyways, enough about Africa. Shout out to all our uh, people in Russia and Ukraine right now. We do have Ukrainian and Russian listeners, not many, but shout out to them uh more russian listeners than ukrainian listeners but that's probably a statistical thing uh shout out to all our scandinavian people all right this is not good podcasting people aren't gonna like hearing me list all of the countries that listen to this show but you know we gotta gotta show some of these international listeners some love so i'll just sum it up by saying shout out to everyone in south america asia europe africa southeast asian islands the pacific islands australia and of course our neighbors mexico and canada all right you guys like that geography whiz over here i'm doing that all off the top of my head anyways so We've got a lot going on with the show Halloween is coming up This episode wasn't that spooky But I do like themes I do like uh, Bringing things Up During certain occasions That are fitting Uh, I was disappointed that I wasn't able to Do a 9-11 podcast This year For whatever reason The cards just didn't line up I tried to email a few guests about it and it just didn't line up but uh either way there'll probably be something maybe for veterans day when that comes up very soon after halloween and then maybe even some uh, like a native american or new england uh colonial type episode for thanksgiving who knows who knows anyways All of that stuff is available very quickly for you to find on the Patreon. Sign up on the Patreon. You could get early access to all of these episodes and more. As soon as I'm done editing them, I publish them. So you'll get it before anyone else. There's bonus content. I have multiple bonus shows. The Illuminati Confirmed bonus show. Synchro Wisdom Dialogue where you, the listener, can participate. I value my time and I'm sure you value yours. So sign up for a synchro wisdom dialogue session. The link is in the description of this episode. It's very easy to find. You can sign up for 30, 60, or 90 minutes and talk to me about whatever you want. Uh, Whether you want to brainstorm, whether you want to share your story or some research or some synchronicities, or maybe you want some advice I could help you start your podcast if you have an idea for a podcast but don't know what to do with that idea maybe I could help I've successfully launched this podcast and in about two years we reached a million downloads how many podcasts can say that I don't know if you are out there and you can say that hit me up I'd love to have you on the show even if your podcast has nothing to do with the topics that we generally discuss here anyways last week's episodes were incredible bob frizzle uh, a new age legend sd Este astra who hit uh struck a chord with me because she went to yale and we talked a lot about yale for all the patreon people who got the scoop on that one Everybody who maybe is a stiffler or is refusing to support the show, you might get a taste of that conversation uh, when my new project comes out. Uh, then we also put out an episode with Rick Strassman, the DMT guy. He is the first clinical professor of psychiatry to work with DMT in a professional legal setting. Very interesting conversation. With him So very cool We got another great episode coming out this Friday If you want to find out what it is Sign up on the Patreon Support us on Rockfin I also do the episodes early on Rockfin um, And then We have some alternatives We are going to be expanding past Patreon One day But for now patreon's a great way to support the show And you can also help Really help by sending a one-time donation. And I'd like to get uh, this goal of at least $500 by the end of the month uh, in one-time donations, which we haven't reached that many uh, before, like just from a call-out like this. So let's see if it works. I need about $500, uh, not for my own personal needs or anything like that, uh, but to create an incredible show specifically curtailed to you guys similar to what I did this July or August can't really remember which month it was now we asked the listeners to support me and Tara as we drove down to Pennsylvania put a little gas in our tank as Biden was uh, you know wreaking havoc on all of our wallets over the past few months kind of slowed down now it's it's trickled back to more modest price but it's still too expensive it should be cheaper so we asked and we received and I'm very grateful for all the folks who supported us and we recorded two very interesting podcasts on that trip now we're planning on recording two incredible even better podcasts if you can believe it or not um, with some very special guests who will be arriving at gnome countryside so if you'd like to see that into existence help me create this reality help me uh, bring it into fruition so to speak Then help with a one-time donation via Cash App, Venmo, PayPal. That'll do it. We'll go back to the Amish Dreamland. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of a weird place to... Weird name for it, Dreamland. Really, it's like a dreamscape, the Amish dreamscape. Because it's very dreamy in that part of Lancaster. You know, it's sort of... You're outside of the electric haze you're outside of the the modern bubble and uh, you could really step into a a liminal space and like I said earlier about the twilight hour seeping into this recording uh, I think that the the place that is this specific area in Susquehanna or Susquehanna this specific area in Pennsylvania has a certain magic to it and I hope to capture that In the recording and the reason why I need $500 is because I'd like to uh, buy the right microphone to record uh, remotely because the last time we did it we used a very uh, cheap $30 portable microphone and uh, I think I could spend a couple hundred dollars on a better one that will allow me to uh, plug in some microphones some professional microphones and then we'll record something really cool and then the rest of the money that we get will go towards uh gas and getting there and all that good stuff so please help us out um not over here begging we do have money but i got bills to pay and all that other stuff so uh, i'm the type of person that puts the practical first most of the time when it comes to uh, financial things i try not to Uh, be too flippant with that and go on all kinds of trips and you know bottom out my savings you know i've been there in the past and it's not fun so uh, i don't want that to happen but i do want to get down to pennsylvania before it gets too cold before there's snow on the road so help us out send a one-time donation right now Uh, venmo cash app paypal and if you do i'm going to put out Four episodes this week that's right four episodes this week and uh, and then we'll have one episode this Monday which puts us at let's see almost I think 16 or 17 episodes just in the month of October which is crazy I mean how many how many other shows do you know are putting out almost 35 hours of content per week well Maybe it's just me, but I don't know. That's what you get when you can, uh, when you can do this podcast thing full time and you're supported by your listeners. So don't be shy. Help me out today. Uh, we've got stickers. We've got merch. Those are also great ways to support the show. And I've got the book list. When you pick up a book from the book list on the website, you get a little kickback for that. If you pick up an Aqua Cure and use the promo code CRAZY, we get some money there. Uh, If you haven't listened to Sam Tripoli's interview on Tinfoil Hat with George Wiseman, definitely check that out. Consider getting yourself an Aqua Cure and either use the promo code Tinfoil Hat or use the promo code CRAZY. Depends on who you want to support. I don't mind. If you support Sam Tripoli, that's awesome. It all goes back to the mission of spreading truth and helping people wake up and break free from the system and find some like minds while they're doing it. So that does it for this very long-winded outro. Uh, Thank you all for being here. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate your time, appreciate the value you bring by listening to the show and the value, of course, that you share with your time, your talent, and your treasure. I haven't said that enough. Shout out to Adam Curry. Shout out to everybody who's uh, on this wave in podcasting, who knows about podcasting 2.0 and talks about the value for value thing. You might hear other podcasters talking about it. And uh, that's the idea. You know, it's open source. It's meant to be shared. It's not uh, one podcast's idea. It's not, it doesn't belong to one podcast. It's a concept that we can all utilize and integrate to make this alternative media space an actual veritable information zone uh, that offers uh, learning, growth, wisdom, even in some cases, and, and a chance to. Uh, to break free from the system, really. I think that's what information is always designed to do uh, until you let the powers that be control it. But we don't like to call them the powers that be around here. We call them the powers that flee. So stand strong, stand mighty, and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. So um, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows. (laughs) Mark is doing a great job, even though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes. (laughs) He's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark.
2: You can call me, Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's. It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers. It's a beautiful
3: day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I got to say, dude. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about. It's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face hour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the brain a barely passing? Caught in the asinine and like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink When it's a bastard latch to the clank clang. The money don't mean a damn thing Think Happiness ain't coming from the bank Dang I'm out here daydreaming The spirit's the egg The self is the semen uh, And that's cause life is the child And it takes a village To give it the endless style So If your family think you crazy mm, And you ain't got a village No, you always got a place here call kick it we chillin exactly dude you get it bro you're so smart everybody (laughs) you're so smart Feel like i'm waking up for the first time crusty's on my third eye but i'm back to the grind pop the blinds open let the sun shine feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes sometimes depression got me playing like sisyphus others got me messing with mania like icarus and meditation helps with the sickness some say it's human condition but it just isn't there's more power in spring flowers the circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured Blurred lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went. Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics. Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't. And your family think you crazy. Yeah. And you ain't got a village. I know you always got a place here. Mm. Come kick it, we chillin'. I'm a conspiracy boy. I'm a conspiracy boy. I'm a conspiracy boy. Motherfuckus. Motherfuckus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. a psychic. I'm a prophet, bro. Why? Are, why you are you questioning that? that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful, yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah. day. I never trust a dude in a sweater. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you?